The Over the Bonnet podcast is brought to you by Mary Mark Medical, Gimpy Foam and Rubber, Luscious Leaks, and Nycat Earth Moving. My guest today is one of the founders of Whiskey's Wish, an organisation involved in training service dogs for ADF and other frontline personnel facing PTSD. Scott Jackman has fought through his own trauma after serving in the army in Afghanistan and was injured during the deployment, causing him to be medically discharged. And it was his dog Whiskey that helped battle his own inner demons. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. (laughs) Well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's over the bonnet. (laughs) You're kidding me, aren't you? Scott Jackman, welcome to Over the Bonnet. Thank you very much, Mark. Mate, I'm going to show this brochure. That's why you're here. It's all about Whiskey's Wish. Yep. What's it all about? Well, in 2012, I deployed to Afghanistan as part of MTF4. Um... It's sort of a historical trip in the sense that we didn't lose a life, but but that doesn't make you feel any better when you get home. But uh, yes, I I was in there, Afghan, we're doing a night patrol. I fell down a mountain, did two discs in my neck and one in my back. But because I was, you know, I didn't want to go home early and wanted to stay with the boys, I just hid my injuries for six weeks and then got back to work. I was supposed to go on a promotion course and then ended up that, I was broken and they wrapped me up in cotton wool and then whatever muscle mass I had fell apart and then all sorts of things sort of started to hurt and ache and um, emotionally because I was part of like a, I was part of like, a, it was awesome. It was like being a, a, a professional athlete, like you're part of a, like a mad team and then not being able to be part of the army anymore and when they said that I wasn't suitable for the job or capable, like that's... To me, that was my that was what I wanted to do till I retired. I wanted to be a crusty old CSM. I was crusty and old already, so I just needed the rank. So, yeah. But um, so I struggled, and I was part of the uh, SRC Soldier Recovery Centre, and they had some dogs there from another group that used to come in every day. And I sort of got you know do sit ups and dog come lick your face that sort of thing, and uh, it was really good. And then I thought, well, I might get a dog. So I went through that group and I, um, the dog was cha- trained up in a prison. I went down there, met the dog. Then that was Whiskey. And then Whiskey beat up the dog next to him. And then the girl goes, I'm so sorry. And I said, oh, I'll take him. He's awesome. So not knowing the rules of service dogs back then, because um, now that we've, we don't have any dogs in the program like that, that was why um, my last dog, Roxy, got kicked out. She was too aggressive. And... Um, yeah, so, but yeah, after whiskey, I got him and life got a little, lot better because I had a reason to get up in the morning. I had to feed him, I had to take him out to the toilet. So before that, I used to just see the kids off, see Liz off to work. Then I'd go back to bed and just drink beer all day and, and gamble. So, you know, like it was a really horrible, just a circle you get drunk then you get up in the morning feel guilty for being drunk then get drunk again and it just went on and on and on and even after i got whiskey i still used to get a bit drunk but then he used to get freaked out so i sort of stopped that and um well i think actually liz probably got more freaked out and told me maybe if i continued to do so she might not be there the next day so i thought oh well 
family or beer. And I'd run out of beer, so I thought I'd go with family. (laughs) (laughs) How important is it having a dog in your life? You say it gets you up in the morning. What's so special about it? Well, it's unconditional love. Like They love you, whether you're the biggest prick in the world or the best person in the world. They don't care. Like... If you locked your missus and the dog in the boot, which one do you reckon would be happy to see you when you let them out? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying. Of course. Yeah, I've never locked Liz in the boot. I'm just saying. I was going to say, or you haven't let her out yet. (laughs) Oh, wouldn't be game. But um, no, whiskey changed my life because I'd I'd go into shops and I didn't. I wasn't worried about people or anything. And because I got a few tattoos and a bald head, people don't talk to me anyway. But when you got a dog, like they'll come and go, oh, what's the dog for? And I used to, oh, I can't say what I used to say, but yeah, like I'd just say, look, it's just for me and, or I'm training for someone else or whatever. And I, I sort of, because of the stigma behind PTSD, especially like around 2012, 2013, it was only really, I think uh, Major General Campbell came out and spoke about it. And mm-hmm. once he did, it seemed to like make it a little bit easier but with that group, like, um, I'd gone to Canada in 2013 with Soldier On for a Wounded Warriors weekend, and uh, that was awesome, but they never sent another lot because us Aussies got a bit loose. <laughs> uh, that scar there is from falling down the basement stairs. We don't have basements say, in Australia. Talk about being a bit loose. Do you need that? Is it an un- unwind? It was. It really was. Like, it was veterans from everywhere, like America, Canada... The palms were there, we were there, and it was just, oh, massive. And then, like, the Canadians are such friendly people. We met a family, and then in um, I got when I got back from Canada, I got whiskey. So I got him about October 2013. Then the next year, because Canada was so great, I took Liz. And um, I took her the next year to meet the family that I met, and we stayed there for a couple of weeks, and... I had someone looking after whiskey when I came back he'd lost a lot of weight but I thought it was just sort of stress and because we'd been over in um, Canada we'd been to Costco so we thought oh, I'll go to Costco here which is really not as impressive as over there <laughs> everything's little here over there everything's big like it massive so you go get a peanut butter jar and it's like that and you come to the Costco here and it's something like this so it's a bit of a disappointment you know I was a little bit let down but then while I was there I was given whiskey a pat on the neck and I felt like a swollen gland and I thought oh he might have a bad tooth or something so I took him to the vet and um yeah they did the tests and found out it was a t-cell lymphoma and he died on no, October the 7th 2014 and pretty much after that because I had no support from that group and there's no um support network that um we decided that we'd do it ourselves so we thought we we're doing uh, and it's been a long a long long sort of ride with whiskey's wish like at the start we made a lot of mistakes and we trusted people too much and then we had like a i think the application was one page now it's like 18 pages so we've had to make put things in place to stop people just wanting to have an accessory or a dog for an accessory and they need to have like a referral from their psych or their um treating GP to support the the dog and to say that they need a dog for support and it's the emotional support because 
when Liz isn't there, like, we've still got two dogs at home, but when I had Roxy, she was, like, there all the time with me, and she followed me, and after she went blind, she had to be touching me all the time, so, and I used to click my fingers and that, so she could follow me, and, and if we could map out a little bit of area, I'd sort of jog around with my little breasts bouncing up and down, and she'd run around behind me while I clicked my fingers, and, no, uh, she was really good, so we ended up... So we started Whiskey's Wish. Um, our plan was to have like one dog in the first year as a prototype and then five years down the track, maybe 20 dogs. Uh, I think we're in our seventh year now. Yeah, and um, we've got 130 dogs in the program. And um, How does that make you feel? You're uh, helping people. I'm pretty proud. Like, I don't like people telling me, oh, you know, you saved my life. If it wasn't for this dog, it would have, you know, I wouldn't be here. But, but like, do. it's true, though. It is true. Yeah. It's so important because... One of the things that I've seen from ex-service personnel, they put a gun in your hand, they say, use it, go and shoot people, go and do what the military does, and then they bring you back into civilian life. And as you were taken away early, Mm. and all of a sudden you've got nothing. You haven't got the brotherhood, you haven't got the support, you haven't got a lot of stuff. Are we doing enough for our ex-service personnel? No. They teach you how to go to war. They don't teach you how to come home. Like the... Poms and that have got it right. Like, they go to war and then they take them off to Cyprus or somewhere, lock them in a big hangar, give them all the grog they can drink and then come <laughs> back and, you know, they, there's no rank in there so they can punch on with each other, do whatever. And they do that for one night and then, you know, give them a couple of days and they send them home. They've got it all out of their system so all the Aussies come home and they're doing that all by themselves. So they're, they're ruining their lives just continuously going through that one night that if you did it with your brothers, it'd be so much better than doing it by yourself. And then once you're out of the green machine, people don't care. Like, it's like a bucket of water. Once I've been taken out of that bucket, it just, the hole fills in, they replace you. If it's taken off you, it's all like you've worked so hard to get there. And it was taken off you. You yeah. didn't want to get oh, out I didn't want to get out. I would have stayed on in any core just to stay in, but I, there was nowhere. Oh, for some reason, they thought I could drive an excavator. I've got a buggered neck, so I dare so I'd have to go. They just didn't know how to look after us. And, it, like, looking back on it now, like, today, they're a lot better at it. Okay. And we've found that with our group, like, we've got some really damaged people in our group. Like, some of them don't leave home, but now they feel happy at home. So they've got their dog, and then if they have to go somewhere, they'll go out, but they only go with the dog. So, you know... It, it's different freedoms for different people because some people like to talk about the dog, some people like to go out and just not be hassled and all that sort of stuff. So unfortunately COVID hit, but we had a big plan to educate a lot of businesses and um, just the community on what these dogs do and what their role is. So, you know, like these are your rights, these are the rights of the people with the dog. So everyone's got rights. So, so what are the rules and regulations with regard to service dogs? It's pretty complicated and convoluted depending on what state you're in because in Queensland it's under God hearing assistance dogs in Western Australia it's under local government South Australia is the cat and dog board something and so it makes it really hard for our people because a lot of them like to travel you know like they get they go by a van I don't know why because I wouldn't want to live in a caravan but you know, some people like that sort of thing and they like to travel. So if you go from one state to the other or they want to fly, then you get there and if you've got a dog that's only under the Queensland legislation, then it's not legal in 
so uh, in Victoria or any of the other states or territories. So what we did was we decided to go under the Disability Discrimination Act under um, Section 54, subsection 7. <laughs> some, oh, subsection 9, sorry. Um, but, and that means that we train the dogs up to a certain level so that they've got basic obedience, they can leave food, and they're under control at all times on the lead, they walk to heel, they don't react to other dogs and all that. And when they get to that point, which you can take from six months to 12 months, depending on the age of the dog, because we don't supply the dogs, people bring their own dogs in. So okay. that way they've already got that bond. And a lot of them, if they don't have a dog, will buy a puppy. So it starts from scratch because no point bringing a 10 year old dog in because then you're going to go through all that training and work and they're not going to last no, too long. And, and, and then they'll have to retire and start again. So we've done it like that. But under the Disability Discrimination Act, you can use that act anywhere in Australia because it's a federal act. So we follow all the rules under that that um, stipulate as to how dogs ha have to behave in public, etc., and the rights of the um, businesses. Because we have a contract that we have with the hospitals so that the recipient signs it and the hospital staff sign it so that we know everyone's on the same page. Uh, maybe 50% of our people have had their dog in hospital, especially when they go to like the um, psychiatric hospitals like Green Bank and I can't remember, oh, Keith Payne Unit, oh, and universities as such as well. But um, with the hospital, it's really good because they get a, their own room, the dog's in there, and it keeps them feeling safe. Because a lot of the time, we've had people that used to go for like three months at a time, and now they've got the dog, they're only in there for three weeks. Wow. So that's that's made a big difference. So we might only have, we're only a small group, and we might only be helping 130 people. That's across like, um, veterans, first responders and correctional officers and I suppose if we, if we had money and COVID hadn't hit we'd probably have first line front line um, health workers on there as well because I imagine they suffer from the stress as well so we've got a good mix of people but mainly um, defence force and they are, like, you know a lot of them really do have a lot of problems like um, not just psychological problems but mental problems and we've got that ranging from you know like PTSD from from combat PTSD from sexual assault PTSD from being attacked um, it's it's a whole different like everyone's different They're, everyone's PTSD is different even the army people like it's similar because I like I turned 50 a while back and I never planned to live that long so it sort of let me, left me at a bit of a loss like what the hell am I going to do with the rest of my life because I never meant to get this far well, if you ask my mum, and she didn't reckon I'd live past 21, so I beat your mum. Do you still miss the army? Yeah, I do. My son's in. He's in 6RAR, and I'm sort of living my life through him at the moment. But, um, yeah, no, I do miss it, but then there's some bits I don't. It's change. It's what not, don't you miss? I don't miss the new rules, like all this... Um, I know it's not probably politically correct, but all this different sexes and all this sort of stuff like when I joined they were boys and girls and you know if you were, were gay or anything it wasn't really an issue you probably knew they were but you didn't say anything because I remember back in the day it was well you just didn't come out in the military oh it was actually illegal back in the 90s because when I joined up first time in the 90s um 
they actually asked you if you're a homosexual and if you were and the funny thing was is if say if uh, you're out in exercise and a young bloke and a medic nurse got it on they'd be charged with homosexuality and that's how it works so it's gone from that to the way it is now and like the army paying for sex changes for certain people and no yeah Yes, but, uh, you know, like, um, I know they paid for boob jobs for girls that were very, you know, had had down in the dumps because their boobs were too small and they paid for them to have breast enlargement, so... Is it important, though, to keep them happy, keep them them in? Uh, I I don't think it is. I think if you're that confused about life that you don't know if you're in the right body or not, how the hell are you going to... Um, concentrate on what's important like mission specific sort of stuff because when you go away you got to like I had to go away and then pretend I didn't have a family for six or eight months do you know what I mean like it it, it's like you got to detach yourself from that and if you're going in there like because there's all that big argument about girls being in war and all this sort of stuff but I serve a lot of girls that were in intelligence and that and we used to be their security when they went up the hill and listened for enemy chatter and that and well it's fine there's no problem with that but like you start making it too like you know you can't call this person a him or a her or whatever it's it makes it very difficult for the people that are trying to train them to go to war when you're having a war on um political correctness so i don't know where that came from it just popped out of my mouth it's interesting though that with uh, the rules and regulations, as you say, they are lax. I know the police force, there was a uh, police officer they used to call the Milky Bar Kid. Yeah. Because he was small, had blonde hair and glasses. Yeah. And they used to hate going to a domestic with this bloke. Yeah. And so going to war is a serious business. Mm. Is it too lax? Do you think they've gone too far the wrong way? I think they have. I think they should dial it back a bit. Like, you know, everyone's got a right to their own sexuality or whatever, but maybe some people aren't suited for the military. I don't see why the military has to take on everyone's problems. They're meant to take people that don't have mental problems and then break them, not the other way around. You gotta, you don't go mental till after you get out. So, But then there are a lot of broken people that do get out. Yeah. So let's get back to Whiskey's Wish, the yep. the logo on your shirt. Let's uh, talk about that. Yep, that's a picture of Whiskey that was taken the day before he passed. We had friends that were photographers. Is, yeah, that's him. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and that paws, his actual paw print, obviously not to size, but <laughs> he'd be a very small dog. But no, that was very important to us because just the, the love in his eyes, like you look at his eyes, and it just says everything about what we do. Because reading off your shirt, when you can't look on the bright side, I will sit with you in the dark. That's right. And they do with, as you say, that unconditional love. And they do. And then when the demons come, they're there. Like our dogs, um, a lot of it's not even taught. It's just instinctual. So like people will be having a nightmare. The dog will wake them up. I, if I had a nightmare, whiskey would wake me up. And he'd jump on the bed and sort of stand on me and stuff. And he was a big dog, so I'd wake you up. And um, we've got other blokes. That, and we now we try and train them to do it. So if they don't do it, we try and prompt them to do it. So like when people are feeling down and horrible, it gives them something to focus on. They go, oh, I'm feeling really shit. I really should get the dog to come and give me a cuddle. And then it all starts to stem from that little, that first little step. And then 
because they're their own dogs and they're not trained to like 12 months old and then given to someone because you don't know if that dog's going to get along with that person or not there's 12 months of them not having anything to do with a dog and then that dog's in love with their handler and then they pass them off so there's it's a bit of hit and miss so we thought well dogs don't have to be labradors or golden retrievers to be service dogs they can be any dog well there are a couple of breeds that aren't suitable but you know like the small pugs and stuff that anything that's too small it's just a trip hazard <laughs> so you, re- you really want any we don't take anything less than 10 kilos so that gives people a bit of range because we, we get a bit soft and say ah oh, right a eh? 7.3 that's close enough but <laughs> you know like i'm i can't say no to anyone like yeah as liz will tell you how much does it cost to train these dogs well we do it for nothing but um in a money sense it's probably somewhere between i reckon 30 to thirty-five thousand per dog really but see then we take out the price of actually purchasing the dogs because that that's non-existent and then yeah we just um yeah when people bring their own dog they've got their own personality that dog suits them you know what i mean like a, you know we've got a skinny little bloke we'll whip it just looks like him so you know best dog for him we've got a few buff-headed dogs for a few buff-headed blokes and yeah no the dog the dogs they bring in are really good but they're temperament tested as well you can't just bring any dog in so like we temperament test and make sure they're suitable to train and then once they're suitable they do all the paperwork get the stuff in and then we do everything it's all online because of covid we had to go online so we've got a trainers only website where they come and they look at all the blogs that we put on any videos um they put in the training logs and we assess them from there so there's always communication with other groups there doesn't seem and there doesn't seem to be that constant communication if i don't hear from someone you know for a couple of weeks then i start ringing them up and saying well, you know what's going on it's not because i you know want to annoy them it's just <laughs> to make sure they're still going and you know try and um you know puff them up a bit and make them feel a bit better about themselves and you know because a lot of people are really hard on themselves when they train their dogs they go oh you know a dog's not doing what okay your dog's awesome it's doing everything but they have such high expectations from being in the army or the police force or wherever they came from that they um they doubt themselves and because they're not in that job you know they got kicked out of the job that they love they, they self-doubt so you're always thinking well, i'm not good enough i'm not good enough oh, i don't deserve to have a dog i don't deserve to have this and that's just the way people feel like yeah like i don't go out much because um, i haven't got a dog of my own but i'll go out because i i do enjoy training the people because I can see them smile like some people you you can have them for like four or five weeks and all of a sudden you see a big smile on their face because their dog did what it was meant to do and they didn't get angry and, and that's the whole thing like you gotta it's a, i suppose like a two-pronged effect i suppose it's you a, see the dog uh, the person grow mm. you see the person grow does the dog grow as well do they grow as a unit yeah they do they grow as a team so it's a, it's a real team effort it's not just um because the dog might be doing something right but it might be the person that's not um giving the right commands or trying to you know and it's very precise too because if you want a dog to pinpoint an action that a dog does you have to mark it when it happens like and if people are too slow then the dog goes what did i get a treat for i don't know what it did 
So it's it's quite complicated. And I, at the start, we used to have um, accreditors from uh, Guide Hearing and that. And then when we changed over to the DDA, we had to do it ourselves. So I did a like a training course in Australia. Then I did one from the UK. And then that pretty much taught me everything I need to know for that. And we've got um, between, well, Liz is a trainer. I'm a trainer. We've got another trainer in the um, organisation, Shane, and he started as a recipient. Who needs more training, the, the dog per- or the person? The person. <laughs> the dogs are awesome. Like we can, they'll walk their dog and go, "I won't walk to here, I won't do that," and then I'll grab the dog and it'll walk for me. It's just the way that you command it and the way that you handle yourself. So, and the other thing is, though, I don't have an emotional attachment to the dog, so I'm not going to get angry at it. Or so the people. That's like something they have to overcome. They have to overcome their own anxiety levels, their own anger, and push it down to a point where their dog can actually work. When you're talking about, you say that there's an 18-page information package that you need to fill out before you take them on board. What do you want to know about a person before you take them on for assistance dogs? We need to know that they have the means and ability to maintain and look after the dog, that they have the um, capacity to be able to keep in contact each week, just send in a training log, uh, although that's not really part of the application. But we need to know like what the housing situation is, all those basic things that you know make sure the dog's all right. And then we need to know why they want the dog, because some people get to that point and they say, I just want it for company, and, and that's not what they're for. They're there to help. They're a medical... Um, the medical equipment, I suppose. How do you identify when you're out in the streets? How do you identify someone that's got one? And how do you approach them or do you leave them alone? But how do you identify a service dog? Well, um, a service dog will have a jacket on for a start. That doesn't really mean a lot unless it's tied to a group because there's so many convoluted rules. Like you can have a service dog and train it yourself as long as you keep all the training notes, all that sort of stuff. But... Um, you should be able to see a jacket with clear markings saying it's a service dog. Let's go back to Afghanistan. Yeah. It was a big part of your life. Yeah. What happened? Well, on my trip, it was quite quiet in the sense that we didn't actually get into comp, like didn't have a, like a, any troops in contact, except for one of our sections that were hanging out with the Yanks, and the Yanks got the Humphy out and put the big speakers in and drove down through the valley plane born in the USA and then all the Taliban jumped up and shot at them so that's how our guys got in that one (laughs) but um yeah no like it was a lot of mentoring and stuff but it was very hard because it was just after that green on blue because the Afghans were shooting the Australian soldiers inside the bases and we had uh several threats like that so you'd make some sort of rapport with the Afghans and then all of a sudden the next day you're all you know, body armoured up and, you know, like looking around the corner when you're checking the towers and that sort of stuff. So, but then I can understand it from their point of view. Like they've been there, those soldiers have been there for the 10 years and every six months or nine months or 12 months, new Aussies come in with, great, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to fix this and do that. And I think they just get sick of it. Like they, they've seen so many trips come and go and they're the same people, so all they do is when they get new ones, it's like, oh, let's start again. And it depends on um, the attitude of the... Like, our our CA was really strict. Like, we couldn't even turn our sleeves up one turn. It was like we had to be as reggie as anything. Why is that? Um, for safety, mainly because they'd lost lives in the previous trips. And, and 
subsequent trips um, afterwards, like 2013, I think, was when... Um, was it Cameron Baird died in 2013? I'm not sure, but it was after our trip. So our trip, we came home, but then even though nothing, no one died on our trip, it was like a sense of guilt because we didn't give enough. And like when I got over there, I never expected to come back because I've always had the, the shittest luck. You know, like if um, anyone's going to fall in a bloody puddle, it'll be me. <laughs> so when I got over there, I was like, ah, oh, well, you know, I was 40, 41 then. So like 41, I thought, oh, I'm the oldest. So I'll be the one that goes. And yeah, it was like every day you're just waiting for it to, you just sort of go out. Because the first patrol you go out and you're sort of shitting yourself before you go out. Then once you get out there, all your training kicks in and you're just like, no, oh, this is all right. And then there were some days like when you go on a 24K round trip patrol and halfway back I'm thinking geez I wouldn't mind getting blown up I'm sick of walking <laughs> but um we did a road trip to build a new base and I think they found like 15 IEDs on the way and it was only a 40 kilometer trip so that was like I think it was five days and it was just like stop start you'd start and then they find another one stop start and then we'd go up the mountain with the girls and listen for the chatter while they blew it up then we go all the way back down the mountain and then you know back in and then i think the worst thing that happened to us was um one of my boys he um rolled one of the gators and it landed right on his head rolled a gator that's pretty hard to do i uh, yeah we'll see what happens is when with the gators when you got your foot on the accelerator they go all right but you take your foot off they freewheel and he, did, he didn't even know how to drive a car, so he's going down the hill, freewheeling, and then rather than going off the cliff, he went into the cliff face on the other side, and it rolled over and landed on his head. Lucky he's a, he's a big, tough fella. But we thought he had a broken back, and then, of course, because it was one of my guys, I had to get an ass ripping from the CSM because it was my fault, and I said, fair enough. And, yeah, it was just a... But after that, like, we sort of said as a section, I said, I don't even care if we get in a into combat now you know like nearly lost a bloke just right going down to pick up the seco to come back from orders so oh the rest of um the troops were pretty annoyed with us though because then the gators got banned so then everyone had to walk up and down the overwatch so yeah <laughs> no that that wasn't very popular but yeah they, like he nearly we thought he'd had a broken back but because of the equipment over there so old with the x-rays it was actually a line on the x-ray machine so he didn't have a broken vertebrae, which was good. And he fully recovered, and um, I think he's a corporal now. Yeah, so he's leading his own men. But um, I saw a lot of bad shit. Like What sort of stuff? Mainly just the locals, the way they live. Like that, You know how they got the chai boys? And where they, they, they dress up like little boys. Like sort of, They don't dress them up like girls, but they put makeup on and all this sort of stuff, make them dance and stuff. And it's just really hard not they say look let them be it's their culture we're just here to mentor them and then you see stuff like that and then uh the general in our camp took a new bride and he was 64 and she was 12 so like that was disgusting like i just couldn't get my head around how they like it but that's their culture it's the way they were brought up and that but i, I don't understand it it's the same with man love thursday is a real thing because they actually on a thursday they like to make love to each other because on a friday the medic would be having all these problems with these afghanis with their doodles that have got a bit of a bit of an infection or something because they've been doing naughty things and i and i've walked in on them 
like oral sex in the towers and all sorts of stuff. Like I don't know how we're in a, we're in a society. They go, oh, I'm 13. I'm reaching maturity. Probably should have sex with my mate. But I don't really know how it works, but it's just a whole different world. And you know, they hump donkeys and goats, and they don't care. What was the thing that stood out to you though about the whole experience? I couldn't really pinpoint one thing, but like, it was just that sense of like actually getting to do your job and being with all your mates that you trained with and like we're like brothers like we still keep in contact our section like all of us and um over the years though we've lost i think well you had two engineers that were attached to our um our section that has sadly passed away one from brain cancer and one from an accidental overdose and both you know like 30 something um we've lost um a guy that was in our battalion he um died from a drug overdose uh he was a champion boxer and like a really nice guy and he had an injury and he got removed from the army and then that injury actually stopped him from boxing again and he actually held the queensland heavyweight title for a while and like that that i think that was the end of him like he just that focus and everything that he had, he just lost it. So, because sport can be a great distraction as well. If you're fit enough to be able to play a sport, it's as good as having a dog. It's just a good way to hang out with mates and stuff. But yeah, like over there, I, I have to say, like our trip, the professionalism of the whole, the whole trip. Because um, I think it was a major general. What's that one? Gilton, that's him. Yeah, he um, when my dog died, he actually came to my house. I don't know why, but he came to console me. So I thought that was pretty cool. But he um, was talking about our trip, and I said, you know, I feel really bad because you know I feel really guilty that we all went over and we all came home. And he goes, no, nah, it was just the way you were trained. He said you were really well prepared for it, possibly over prepared. And and the funny thing was, it was a bad poppy season, so most of the fighters had gone to the other end of. Um, Afghanistan but the stupid thing was though we were um, taking the fingerprints and you know doing the retina scans and everything of these people and because it's not in real time you've got to load that device up you could have had like a um, like one of the bomb builders right there and you've just and they'll, it'll pop up on the thing once they load it in so then that's that's a week later when you get that report back that bloke's not hanging around and um, we had a lot of restrictions like when we're doing roadblocks and everything we couldn't search the women, so we had to make them pull their clothes tight to see. And you couldn't tell with the full burkas whether it was a man or a woman under there anyway. So it really undermined a lot of stuff that we did. Like, we were doing security, but we had so many limitations. And your rules of engagement say that... Because um, we got shot at a couple of times, and they landed maybe, I don't know, 50, 60 metres away from us, and, like, it wasn't a big deal. But the thing was, though, the bloke that shot at us just dropped the gun, turned his back. Once he's done that, you can't shoot him, even though he shot at you. Why not? Because um, that's the rules of engagement. You're not allowed to shoot an unarmed combatant. And they could shoot at you, drop the gun, and once they haven't got a gun in their hands, they're not a combatant. Is it difficult not knowing your enemy over there? Oh, yeah, they because oh, I hate to say it, but they all look the same to me, but... Um, that a lot of it's because the women have got their faces covered, so you just don't know, like, it's... um. It, like you don't know who is the enemy because they all dress the same and you can tell the ones that like the scholars and the um because they're not wearing a uniform no they don't wear a uniform they just wear their normal everyday clothes and 
like a, the the Afghanis brought in a couple of um, like Taliban fighters that they found, and they had like a rusty old shotgun that looked like your muzzle loaded it. That's how bad their weapons were. <laughs> but you know, and we had to watch them. Like we had to supervise the Afghans looking after their prisoners because you didn't know what they were going to do to them. And then I'm sitting there on a chair on my picket watching like 10 blokes with machine guns looking at me while I'm looking at them and I'm meant to be the guy that if they hurt that guy too much. But then you don't know. It's all like you nearly get to that point, you go, he shot us, so we let us shoot back. I go, oh, hang on, we've got to check to see if he's still got a gun. So, like, you know, it's it's that sort of thing. Like, it's not just you get shot at and you shoot back. It's all like, okay, well, they shoot at him, sir. Like, what's the go? Can we shoot back at him? And then it's like, no, oh, no, it's all right. We'll let the Afghans sort it. And, yeah, I don't know. It was just, it was very, very hard to operate under those conditions. I understand why they have the, 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 the constraints there, but... It's just really hard to do your job if you got second guess yourself all the time. Like, am I going to get court martialed if I shoot? Or am I going to, you know what I mean? Like, you're always worried in the back of your mind that you might get in trouble for doing your job. The Burton Inquiry uh, um, has tarnished the reputation of Australian soldiers. What's your take on it? Well, I'm a little bit old school, so I think, like, you know what happens happens and it stays on the battlefield like i don't know about the blighting thing like it might happen it might not but i've never seen it and as far as i'm concerned all these people that have got an opinion unless you were there you don't know so don't have an opinion and the way that the army handled it like um was it angus houston yeah yeah when he came out and apologized to the to the afghani people for crimes committed against them, I felt like slapping him. Like, they, they blew up, like, what, the 9-11, Bali bomb, like, all that stuff they did and all the people that we've lost, and then he goes and says sorry to them. I'm not sorry, and I'm not going to say sorry either. So, like, I was there to do a job, and unfortunately they were the enemy. Well, some of them were. It's a bit hard to tell. Like you said, you can't tell who the enemy is. I think that would be the hardest thing is not knowing and then they could put the gun down, as you say, and the person that you're interviewing could be the bomb maker. Could be. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you don't know. And because you haven't got that, uh, that maybe they've got it in real time now, but like back then they didn't have it in real time, so you couldn't just sort of like press a button and go in the machine, come back and say, yep, he's good or bad. So, yeah, it was really... And we had... and. The medics used to get really, really cheesed off because they'd have kids come in, they'd be missing three fingers because Dad's teaching them how to make bombs, but obviously he's as good as Dad. All good bomb makers are missing fingers. <laughs> That's why, yeah, like, um, 90% of them, you see people missing fingers go, oh, he's a bomb maker. But you can do, like, a test on their hands to see if they've had um, explosive stuff on them and that. But, like, you know, we didn't have all that sort of stuff all the time. Like, we trained in all this really cool kit before we went over and then got all the shit stuff that was left behind, all the good stuff probably in Australia getting used on training exercises. So as far as like um, uh, recognition of, um, their, you know, their fingerprints and everything, it wasn't in real time, so it just made it really hard. How do you mean not in real time? Can you... Oh, well, so you had a machine, you'd, you'd scan their fingerprints and then you'd take a photo of their retina and that was stored in that device 
until you took it back and then it was loaded somewhere in the CP and then sent off to, to like Terrancot or wherever they were sending it to, then they'd go through the database and then send back and say, oh, yeah, that bloke was bad. And it would go, well, that's not much good now. There, there was one, because um, all the operatives, like, you know, their bomb makers have um, special names, like, you know, um, you know, Scud Missile or whatever. But there was one that was called um, Awkward Chicken. <laughs> So we were on tailing the awkward, chi- awkward chicken for a little while, which I thought was funny. I was sort of hoping to fight, like catch up with him to see if he looked like a chicken. So, yeah, I don't know why we were chasing him. but Did we have a win in Afghanistan? No. Nah. They're just going back to the way they were. Like it's Because there's so many different tribes, you can't have a democracy because as soon as someone gets into power, they get all their family and everything to be the police and everything else. So then the 10 other tribes don't like them, so they fight against them. So then someone else gets in power and then they all, they just all infight. Like they breed their kids like they, they have no regard for the for the girls. So you see a lot of a lot of burnt babies and that where they just, they, they leave the girls to their own device and they might pull a pot of water off the stove or whatever. And the boys are held, you know, up here. And the girls are just something that they, that they barter with later on to when they marry them. And that's probably why they wear the burkas because half of them are missing, they haven't got any hair because they've been burnt, burnt faces and everything. So that's the way that they get married and it's sort of like a bit of a, sort of like a bit of a, I don't know, a bit of a surprise to sort of find out who you're marrying. It must have been a culture shock for you then when you went and you landed on the ground. What was your first impression and what were your initial impressions of what you experienced over there? Well, first off, we landed in Terrancot, and um, that was really just a week and probably 10 days of just going over all our processes and putting everything in place for when we did deploy to our, um, our um, base that we were going to operate out of. So, like, when I first got there, it was just like business as usual. It was just in a big base, and we're doing all the, you know, the stuff. And then once we left there... Because, like, flying into Afghanistan, it was like we had all our body armour on this thing, and as soon as we crossed the border, we all had to put our body armour on, and they throw chaff and do a funny little manoeuvre, and then we all got to where we were going, and we all, uh, I think, it was, yeah, so we were, where were we? Terrancot, and then we, we did a road trip to Wiley, so that was only, like, maybe 12 k's out of Terrancot, but that, most of the bases are fairly close. There's only a few that are further away. And, um, yeah, no, like, once they hit the ground there, like, it was just... It's, there's nothing there really like apart from the green zone around the the river it's just rocks and probably a lot of iron ore that you know someone might like to get their hands on but that's about all there is and that there's the grass is so sparse you go up to a mountain i know i kicked a tortoise down a mountain because i was so pissed off it took me an hour to get up there and i get up there and there's a bloody tortoise well, how the hell did he get up there so i gave him a little flick and made him go down a few feet because i thought tortoises and beating me to the top of the hill but they were everywhere, like you know. And then you catch them and put your name on them, and then the Afghanis would catch them and eat them. So they'll eat anything. Yeah, it wouldn't matter if it was a. Uh, they're pretty. I suppose it's pretty hard to live there. Like during the winter, they store like not just firewood, but cow dung, anything to burn a fire. And um, I know Australia helped put in some pumps and that, so they got water and that sort of thing. So we, I, I think, we did a lot of good. But when we left, like, they, they got the bases and everything, so, but they're also marked by the Yanks so that if they should be taken over by a Taliban group, they can just wipe the base out. But 
I don't know whether they'd even bother now. Like, I, I, I really just think we wasted our time, honestly. Like, a lot of lost lives for nothing, because what were we fighting for? Are you disappointed, though, when you say that you got second-class gear when you went over there? You trained with good gear, went over there, and it, and it wasn't. Why is that, and what do you put it down to? Lack of resources. Like, they were a new thing in Australia at the time, because they had... Um, they called one, the first model was called the Hyde, and the second one was called the Seek. So we were using the Seek, and then when we went over there, we were using the Hyde. So it was something we'd never been trained on, and then you're trying to use it, and it was really hard to like you had to get there. It was so hard to take a picture of someone's eye, let like you pretty much had to get them to hold their eye open to take it, and, it, and you had to have them in the right light. And we'd be walking around with like bits of cardboard trying to shadow things like being in the studio like trying to look at the right lighting and that and it was just disappointing that we didn't have the stuff that we trained on when we like we're like we trained on you know the mark 19 i think the, the grenade launcher we used that and like i don't think i saw one over there so it's just stuff like that like all all the um commandos and sas had all, all the good gear but um i think yeah just um infantry troops just get the leftovers and should the SAS be getting the support because of the Brereton inquiry do you think they should be getting more support yeah I think so because I reckon it'll probably be the end of a few people because that's gonna it really it does it puts a because we got a couple of commandos in that thing and like even them like it just makes them think why the hell do I even bother like all that stuff I did and it's all secret and I can't tell anyone so I can't even, you know, like let it out to the psych sort of thing because you can't trust them. Just saying, <laughs> I don't don't trust anyone that tries to tinker with my mind. <laughs> but that's just me. But all of this that you're you're talking about, then you come back, and it's all about decompressing, and it doesn't seem to be happening. No, well, it was especially bad when we got back because whoever the. Um, chief of the army was then did a big speech and said that was the last trip we'll be ever doing everything's going to be just back to non-wartime stuff and it was like well well that's no good I wanted to go back somewhere else and have another crack and yeah it was just disappointing and we came home and they instead of like I was a Charlie company instead of just keeping us together till we you know decompressed for a week they split us all up and, you know, we're even Alpha Bravo or support. So we all got separated. And, you know, it would have been really good to be able to just spend some time with your mates without... Cause it got back on the base and it was like you've been under different rules and you had certain, you know, like that responsibility of, you know, carrying grenades and weapons and all that stuff. And then they come, you come back and start treating you like kids again. And it's just ridiculous. And, like, I got shitty about that. But then I thought, you know, fall in line, do what you got to do. So I went to the doctor, did my thing, found out I was broken, and then everything just went to shit. Like, once you're off that list of um, able-bodied people, there's a real stigma about it. Because there were people that were in the battalion when I got home, never met them before, they only just got there while we were away, calling me a malingerer because I wasn't doing training. But, you know, I'm lucky to walk. But, ah, oh, it just really peeves me because like I think you deserve a spe like I'm not saying that you know because I go to war that's special or anything but you should at least be able to be treated in a sense that that a little bit more understanding if that makes sense like treat us like adults like not like we came back and it was just such a total different 
attitude towards us. Like when we were over there, we were responsible and we could do this and we could do that. You come home and then they just go, nah, you just goes. We, we sat around for weeks doing nothing. They just kept us there. And like we had to wait for the whole trip to come back before we could have like any sort of celebration. So what it was is that the battalion came back in lots. So one week, one had come back. It's at the same as they deployed. So it was just in order of the way you came home. But we had to sit, I think we were one of the first ones to come home and we had to sit there for three weeks and wait for everyone else to get home before we could really get into anything. And then that, then you have to do your psych interviews and all that. And yeah, a lot of it's just disappointment in how you're treated when you get home. Like, to me it was. Like, I just... And because I was broken, like, you know, they're going to replace you because that's the nature of the beast. But I didn't want to be replaced. I wanted to stay there. I didn't care if I was just a shit kicker and I was just pushing the broom. Describe being broken. Well, being broken is more mental than than physical. And, like, I just couldn't wrap my head around anything. Like, And I was so angry, like, just angry all the time. Because, like, I come back, like I said, you're talking about coming back. Like, I came back and it's sort of like one day you're, you're sleeping in a, in a, you know, a hab with, with 12, like this, no, he means in a section. Ten blokes. <laughs> Had to have a think then. Four or five. Might be ten. Yeah, so like ten blokes. And then you got all these little jokes and that that you say. And then I come home and I think of something and I say it to Liz. And she go, what the hell are you talking about? And I go, oh, it was funny over there. But um, <laughs> it's just like, I don't know. It'd be, I suppose it'd be part, like being part of a, a, like a professional football team or something. If you, you know, you can't do it anymore. It, it like that. I can imagine that it, you know, really, really affect their mental state. And like, I think that's what broke me. It wasn't. I don't think it was anything. Else. Look, I've seen blown up people. I've seen dead people and all sorts of stuff over there. Like, I found a testicle one day. I was dry, I was walking along and thought I found an eyeball because after an ID blast. But then I found out later on it was a testicle. So I was quite proud of that. And what was the worst thing you saw? Um. Probably when there was a police checkpoint not far from our base and they got attacked by the Taliban and when they came in, like, you know, the bits and pieces hanging out and the smells that go with it and everything. And because these guys were so dehydrated and everything, they couldn't get a, a line into them. So they used like a drill and they drill a needle into your bone in your leg and they just put it straight into your bone. And, like, that's the only time I saw this bloke even flinch. He'd lay there the whole time while they were playing with his guts and everything, and they put this needle in, he just shot bolt upright and then just straight back down again. But they are tough as anything. Yeah, what do you put that down to? That Why they're so tough? Yeah. Because they're, like, they're living like um, part of the food chain. They have to survive. Like, they have to fight to survive. They have to fight to be able to get food. Um, sometimes they... I just think it's their culture. Do like, they resent having... Yeah, they do. They hate having us there. Because um, even when we were there, they said, how about you go home, leave all your gear, like your Bushmasters and everything, but you just go home and we'll finish the war. But you can't trust them. Because the generals that were running the, the bases would be in charge of the pays and they'd hold their pays for them and say, yeah, yeah, we'll hold them for you. But whether or not they actually got their pay later on, you don't know. I've heard that they do skim off the top. Yeah, they do. The generals do. They're horrible. Like the, when we went there, we had some meat and stuff that was there. They pinched all their good meat and ah, oh. and then they um, accidentally 
I think they did on purpose. I went down to do a sure so I was like um, personal protection for the Sarge. When we, oh no, it was the boss, Sarge. Can't remember, it was one of them. But I went down there just to be security while they talked with the general. And like they got little lollies, looks like sugar crushed up into, and then made into little lumps. And I just thought, oh, you, they offer it to you, they say take it because it's rude not to. So I took it. After a while, I was feeling really lightheaded and I stood up and I fell over and then they're all laughing at me. And I said to the interpreter, I said, what the hell's in these lollies? He goes, opium, hash. And I was like, holy shit. (laughs) What was that experience like? Oh, it was pretty hard to get back up the hill because I had a a big tin of two fruits and I got up halfway up the hill and I dropped the tin and it rolled back down. So I walked back down, go get it. And the bloke up on the overwatch is sitting there like with his sniper rifle, just watching him and he's going, Jacko, what are you doing? I said, I'm bringing up the two fruits. By the time I got it there, it looked like you'd hit it with a ball peen hammer. It took me like an hour to get up the hill because I kept walking down after this bloody tin. And um, yeah, it was pretty horrible. I actually said to the boss, you can hang on to me rifle for a while. I said, I'm not feeling too good. But he said that, you know, it was an accident. It wasn't like I purposely got drugged. I think they drugged me just to think it was funny. But you got to be careful, eh, because they'll drug you. They'll rape you, the bastards. Really? Yeah. Well, as you say, the culture is different. Mm. How has it changed you now? Um, well, I still love the fact that I was in the Army. I feel like a bit of a has-been now. It was like 10 years ago. But... um. It's, it's made me stronger in some ways. Like, I'm not scared of death. Like, I could die tomorrow, I don't care, I've got no regrets. Got no, oh, I probably should have some, shouldn't I, love? But, um, yeah, no real regrets. <laughs> so, but, and I think it's made me a better person. I'm more um, understanding of other people's mental health. And, you know, our, our middle son, he's got Asperger's and he, he suffered a lot with depression and stuff. So it sort of had a bit of a background in it. And then because I was a Lance Corporal, I was pretty much mum of the section. So anyone that had any, like all admin and personal problems, you know, like the missus is cheating on them or whatever, they come and talk to me and then I make them feel better and all that sort of shit. Because the families, they must really suffer because of what the soldiers go through when they come out and there's really nothing for them then. It's up to the families. Well, see, I'm one of the very lucky ones that I'm still married, whereas most of them weren't. Like, when they came back, like, their relationship broke up. I've seen relationships break up over a dog. They'll say, I'm getting a dog, and they go, well, you can have the dog, but I'm leaving. And then that they give them that ultimatum, so, like, it's like they can't... Was it going to die anyway, though, if that happens? I think so, because if you're going to break up over a dog, I think it's just an excuse to look for something. But, um, yeah, but see, some wives are just... They're horrible, not like my beautiful, wonderful, faithful, awesome wife. (laughs) Just saying in case she's listening. How tough is it on the families? I know I grew up in a service family and I have some understanding of... They live it almost as much... Oh, they do, because like I come home and I talk to them like a corporal. Like That's the way I treated my kids. The same way I'd yell at people at work, I'd yell at them at home. So they're pretty well adjusted, I tell you. (laughs) (laughs) My son that joined the army, um, he goes, oh, they don't even yell at me as much as what you do, Dad. And I said, oh, that's all right, eh? How's he going? How's how's he enjoying his... Really loves it, loves it. Yeah, he's, uh, it's funny because he's an APC driver with six RER. He's an infantry soldier, but he trained as a driver. And I was an APC driver when I first joined 
first armoured when I was a reservist, and now he's um, yeah, he's going really well. And he's he had to have a shoulder operation, but like he got the good wog genes from Liz, so he's a big unit. <laughs> and um, yeah, so he he does, he loves it. And I said to him, because he, he's been missing the battalion balls and that sort of thing, where they all get out and cut loose because of COVID, they can't get out and do it, but. You know, and oh, he's always once a month he goes out with his mates, and I think last time the police brought him home because his ten minute walk took him forty five minutes to get halfway home, then fell over in the gutter, and then he comes around and goes, "Oh, dad, cops brought me home last night." And I said, well, "What'd you do?" And he goes, oh, "I fell asleep in the gutter," and I said, "Oh, she get take after dad. That's something I'd do." <laughs> How important for soldiers is alcohol? Oh, it's like our prized possession. And it, it's a culture because, like, when I was in, they, even in the, like, 2010, 2012, like, oh, even from 27 on, I suppose, it was like you go to the boozer and they tell you, drink responsibly, don't go out, drink, drive. And it's all like, okay. And then you got a corporal or a sergeant going, you will have two beers before you leave this boozer. And I was like, oh, okay. And then you have two and then you have seven. And then, <laughs> yeah, and the coppers are always waiting out the front gate so you'd have to get someone to drive you home. What was the relationship between the army and the police? Uh, not too bad, but um, they knew that because it was a bait, like where a nogger is, they, they know that when um, fights are starting and that, that it's not going to... If there's one bloke punching on with an army bloke, then all the army blokes are going to go and try and grab him before he gets arrested and then maybe finish the fight. Because that was the other thing. They used to confuse you and say, you're on holidays, don't muck up or you're off the trip. But if one of your mates is in the shit, if you don't jump in, you're off the trip. And I'm like, holy shit. So I didn't go out with any mates over that trip, over that holiday, because I didn't want to get in trouble, because I had no idea what I had to, what was the right thing to do. What is the right thing to do then when you're doing these sorts of things? Is it drink responsibly? Is it, what do you think that you should be doing? I think you should always just look after your mates because that's, in the end, that's what the CSM is all like. Go home and behave yourself. And if you get in a fight, make sure you win it. So, like, you know, it's just the culture. It's like, well, it's not a boys' club because there's girls in there too, but they, we all see each other as equal. There's no boys or girls or weak or strong and that sort of thing, and everyone's got their strengths. Like, sometimes you just got to have someone like me who's probably useless at everything, but he's the funny guy. Is that one thing though that the is that the big thing that you miss the boys club the oh yeah camaraderie I, I do I really miss that because like you got your own little jokes and you, you sort of muck around like school kids like you still have like like wrestles on the lawn I was forty something I'm wrestling eighteen year olds because I'm an idiot but you know it's just that sort of stuff like you know running around like run past the the AC when you when you having a run and giving them a smack on the bum and say, sorry, sir, thought you were someone else. <laughs> and, um, yeah, just that sort of stuff. Let's get back to Whiskey's Wish. Yep. All of this stuff that you've been talking about really lends itself to what you're doing to help these guys that have a big hole in their life. Is it filling the hole? Is it enough? It is. It is filling the hole. Like, I've seen so many people get so much benefit. And then these are people that were like... Like I, even now, like I get a phone call every now and then. Someone says, "Oh, I'm going to kill myself," so I'll go around to their place if they're in Brizzy, or we'll get someone else to go around, or another group if we can't reach them. But I'm always on the phone to people that want to kill themselves. I'm the I'm the person they ring if they want to 
So that's it, I've had enough. And then I jump in the car and then I go to their place and watch them get drunk and then sometimes take them to hospital depending on what the go is. But yeah, it, it is really hard. Like it's, um, and then the dog, they'll say, look, I'm, I'm really, I feel shit, I feel like killing myself. And I say, mate, you just got your dog. What will happen to your dog? And they go, oh, you know, I couldn't do that to my dog. Probably do it to their missus, but they wouldn't do it to their dog. But we've got guys and girls in there and they get great. Like, what that dog does for them at home, that's the most important part, really. It keeps them alive because they've got this this relationship with it. It's like nearly like on an equal par because the dog and the person are, are a unit. They go out as one, and that the team and um, how they work together is really what it's all about. And the dogs have just got a way of sneaking into your heart. If you're a dog person and you get a dog and you go, oh, I don't know if I'm sure about this. And then once you start doing the training, you see that you can do it. And there's all other people that no one ever asks anyone any questions. They never judge anyone. And if they do, they get shut down and probably told to go away. But um, it's just such a great bunch of people like they get there they train they talk about stuff so we've got a lot of poms in there so i can't understand what they're talking about because half of them are geordies and, and it's all god bless and something something and the f word but um yeah no like we've got a great because we um look after any um coalition troops as well that reside in australia so if we've got any yanks poms canadians whatever we'll um we'll look after them they can't help where they were born <laughs> with with what <laughs> with you um is it therapy for you to be doing whiskey swish yeah it is like sometimes it gets a little bit too much for me and i just walk away from it for a bit but that's just the computer work because i'm like i type like this so it takes me ages to do stuff so if it gets tipped it on top of me i'll just leave it for a couple of days and go back to it because i'm still getting back to them within a day or two like if someone rang me up, we'll always get back within 48 hours or 24 hours. Like We try to get back within 24 hours because when I was part of the other group, you'd ring and nobody would answer and, you know, all you wanted was someone to talk to. Like, you know, oh, you know, my dog's done really good, I did this today or whatever. Like, you just wanted an ear, like someone just to just to take the take the weight of what, what you're going through. And... That's the other thing, like, with our group, like, me and Liz probably do suffer a bit from compassion fatigue. <laughs> oh, seriously, like, some of the things that we've heard, like, you, you take it on board. Like, there's some girls that can't train with boys because of the, what's happened to them in the past. And then I and I feel really special because there's a couple of girls like that, and I go, oh, I'll go in Scott's class. And it's probably because I talk to everyone the same. I don't talk down to or up to or, like, you know... Now that I'm out of the army, we've got. Oh, I go to the gym with a colonel. Like it could be Colonel Colonel Sanders for all I care, because <laughs> it doesn't matter anymore. But it's. I still do respect the rank. Like if a you know like major general or something, I still call them sir, because they've earned that rank. But you know, just how important is it uh, that hierarchy system in the army? And is it something when you get out that you also miss? Yeah, it is because when you've got a problem there's always someone to go to higher up or you can take it a step further when you're at home it's just if you're not doing what the missus said then you're wrong yeah i learned that over 28 years that's hard so lesson that's the thing the families really and coming back to the families with the the weight is there enough support okay taking the soldiers out of the equation is there enough support for the families there seems to be a little bit more now that 
VVC has changed their name to Open Arms. I think they're offering a little bit more, but they, I don't, I don't think so. I, I don't think so because like I've had to take my younger son to a psychiatrist because of um, issues that he's had with my behaviour in the past and that's what sticks in his head because he was at that impressionable age. And like I have one beer now and he's jumping down the throat which really pisses me off because, you know, I just say to him, look, I'm only going to have a couple of beers but you've got this voice in your head going like this. So it does affect them all different. Like um, Maddie's um, very, like our middle son, very compassionate and very caring and um, if I'm in pain, he feels my pain. So, like, I, I think he struggled a bit as well. So, um, it does, it affects everyone. And like Liz, I think I've driven her over the edge several times. I, I think I just come back an hour later and she's still there. I'm good, I'm still married. So. <laughs> <laughs> Let's look at the financial side of it again. Do you get any help from any uh, organisations or the government? We did get a grant from Department of Social Services that runs out probably about June this year. It was cut short because of COVID, but the fact that the, um, the government gave us that grant, it gave us the ability to employ Liz and Simone to be able to do all that stuff that we would have had to pay well, massive amounts to get all the, um, the we've got work um, books for and instructional manuals for all our trainers. So to put all that together and, and like, cause Liz volunteers, I couldn't count the hours that she volunteers, but she works just as many for Whiskey's Wish at the moment. So we're really trying to do the best that we can to get donations and that to keep it going. Like, I, for us to grow, like, we survived COVID only because of the DSS. If it wasn't for them, and I'm going to say Peter Dutton, good bloke. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You've mentioned COVID quite a number of times. How has that affected you? Oh, well, all our fundraisers went out the window because we couldn't have a gathering, couldn't have... Like, even with raffles and that, it was really hard to sort of go out and sell tickets and everything's online. And at that time, nobody wants to spend money. Uh, also, it's it's sort of isolated some of our people, especially the ones in Sydney. And it's isolated them from their trainer. The trainer might only live five kilometres away, but they can't go to train them because of COVID. So when these guys are, can't do what they do and they can't take the dog out to be able to go out in public because they're not allowed out in public, like that's been a really hard thing for a lot of our people to... But the thing is, though, like you say, that, that like the lockdown, if you said to anyone in our program, you're locked down for a month, I'd go, yep, no worries, I won't leave the house. So, like for us, we've been training for that our whole lives, for being by yourself and locked down. So, it, it, like um, COVID was easy for me, I loved it. But um, well, apart from the bad bit where everyone died, but like for me, it was very good just being at home. Like I, and it gave me a little bit of a break from the charity. I think I needed a little bit of a break because it was getting very like, it's emotionally draining sometimes. Like some of these stories that you hear, like, ah. Oh, What's a story that stands out to you that really has touched a nerve for you? Well, actually it was one one of our recipients late last year, he'd done so well and he'd um, been from a marriage breakup. He'd lost a, a son when he was young and he was only 31 and he was going so well and I saw him the week, a week before he passed away and he told us that he'd attempted to take his life and I said, you can't do that. Like, you know, you got a daughter and all this sort of stuff and your dog and, and he was so on board with getting back into training and he wanted to be a trainer himself. 
and then a week later he um got a bad dose of coke and and he passed away like and then to me like he, he was a success story and it was just a tragic accident that he took too much of something he shouldn't have and you know like and it, that story sticks out to me but there's other stories like i know a guy uh, it's really hard i hope they not listen um but there was a i will say a person a person that was sexually assaulted when they were like 16 in the army and then they got out of the army because that was the shittest part of their life then they joined the police force and like that person's life has been a roller coaster up and down up and down and i've been supporting that person for four years and it's just it breaks your heart some of the stuff you hear like you you don't even think that like that happened like i've never experienced that in the army but like there was a hierarchy of officers that were just um like um grooming and and taking advantage of these apprentices on like because they're out the back in the workshops and everything and they were telling me because a lot of them join when they're 15 16 so like they're very impressionable and to have um senior officers people that they trust and think that are there to to protect them to abuse them in that manner is like it's a it's a horrible thing so it does go on but it's just like i haven't seen it firsthand like uh, apart anything i've seen firsthand is the old rules like you got a problem you take it to the box room and you punch the shit out of each other but there's nothing wrong with that i think that builds character and and it makes him a face pretty see it's been beaten around a bit respect for each other yeah a lot of respect and the thing is though you can have a punch on with a bloke and then you're down the pub you know arm around each other telling them how much you love them so it's just a way of like blowing off steam because you do you like there's a lot of pressure on you like in some of these exercises and then if you're the one person that does something wrong and then you're like everyone's looking at you it's like oh, i don't know i have been that person once or twice what do you think about anzac day how do you celebrate that i don't i, I don't feel like i did enough to deserve my medals and i don't march i did the the one on the driveway last year but yeah i don't go to anzac day i don't feel proud in that sense i don't think i did enough to deserve them so i don't i don't wear them the only time i wear them is when i go to see my mate at the at the uh or one of my mates at the um cemetery and i wear them on my vest and um take a beer down for him on anzac day so that's that's my um little ritual he passed away in 2018 so and that was really sad because he was only 29 and um yeah that's my ritual for i wear my medals for him but i don't like going to places and you know people can tell where i've been and i, I just don't feel like i deserved it. i was on a trip that didn't really kick off into anything like we had a few close calls with other things but it just wasn't you i don't, served your country yeah i know but i don't think i served it well enough like i don't think i deserve to have ptsd even like i don't feel worthy of that injury because i don't think i did enough I'm not often speechless and and that I feel for you yeah but that's something that I carry around all the time that's always in there that I never did enough because like you know like all these young people that died over there and died back here when they came home I would have gladly given my life for every one of those lives I would really would but um yeah, you can't and carrying uh, guilt yeah I, I carry a lot of survival guilt our trip came back complete whole you know everyone was we've lost so many off that trip since 
Like, it's just ridiculous. Like, and, you know, like probably four or five of them I, I serve with quite closely and some of them were actually attached to our section. So, like, it's really hard for me to feel like I did something. Like, these guys have been on multiple trips. A lot of them are engineers and engineers are spread thin over there. Like, they even trained us how to be engineers. So I did a bit of searching for bombs and shit. And if, if you think that... um you know, uh, someone pointing a gun at you makes you pucker up. I'll tell you what, when you're searching for bombs, that's even worse. I'd rather get shot at. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, like, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I've got a lot of respect for all the guys I went with. I just, me, myself, I don't think I did enough. And I'd, I wish I could have my time over again to do it properly. And if I could trade my life for anyone's, I'd, I'd gladly give mine for one of theirs. You carry so much and you're giving so much and it's, I think you've done more than your share and I think you can know that with Whiskey's Wish you're continuing to give. How can people help? How can people donate to support your charity and keep the work going? Um, well, they can jump online and can go to the website and you can donate that way. Or um, So where do we go to? If someone wants to go to the website, let's... You go to www whiskeyswish.org.au that's whiskey w-h-i-s-k-e-y-s-w-i-s-h so it's whiskey's wish and we're also on facebook as well so you can get on there we also got merchandise and stuff with like hoodies t-shirts and some other things i think we're getting some um, umbrellas for some reason yeah <laughs> uh, i'm gonna we're only getting 50 of them i'm gonna sign every one of them so they've got a, a signed and numbered we number them ourselves we're pretty we're pretty laid back because we're not we're not a big big charity but you know look we've done pretty well like and the, when we have the fundraisers we've got a few groups that do like big bike rides and that um shepherds australia do like a baton ride where they go around victoria and they carry this pdsd baton and they take it to all the rsls and raise money along the way but covid stopped that so it's really hard like we we try to there's some people get the tins out and we give them a, a letter so they can use the tins to raise money and we just do whatever we can like liz and simone will go to the markets and they go and try and sell their merchandise and you know some people come up and just give you money and say pop that in the tin or whatever but um it's sort of really hard to ask like i don't like to ask because soldiers don't beg so i don't like to like plead for oh yeah if people can give it like i'm happy happy to take it i'm not saying that i'm not but yeah i've never been one to be able to ask for money and we've always got we've we've survived covid i just hope that we can survive this year scott jackman thank you for your service and thank you for whiskey's wish because you really you are doing what needs to be done and I don't think you give yourself enough credit but thank you for joining us over the bonnet. No worries, thanks Mark thanks for having me. This podcast is brought to you by Mary Mark Medical Mary Mark Medical is your local medical practice in Gympie specialising in quality family medical care. Are you always sick? Ranging from acute medical issues to management of long term chronic conditions. When you need to get better, even if you have complex health problems Get the right diagnosis with Merrymark Medical. Contact Merrymark Medical in Gympie on 54811873 or find them at 18 Young Street. The podcast is also brought to you by Gympie Foam and Rubber, your local store that specialises in foam cup to size. 
They've got all sorts of good stuff like upholstery and craft foam, even loose spinning foam. The shop is packed with things like mattresses and pillows. Ah, not so squeezy. Now, they'll help you get down and dirty and save your feet with rubber flooring and mats, anti-fatigue matting, and they have industrial mats and rubber. If they don't have it, Andrew will get it in for you. Plus, for Over the Bonnet listeners, mention the show and ask for your discount and you'll receive 10% off the price. That's right, 10%. Only for Over the Bonnet listeners when you mention the show and you have to ask for your discount. That's at Gimpy Foam and Rubber. We can't go without mentioning Luscious Licks. 100% fruit ice cream. You can find them at local markets and all sorts of events. They are a really delicious alternative to conventional ice cream. With Luscious Licks, it's completely dairy-free, gluten-free, and with no added sugar. Because there's nothing added. And best of all, it's guilt-free. And it tastes great. Look out for Luscious Licks in the pink marquee at a market or event near you. And finally, the show is brought to you by NICAD Earth Moving, that specialises in roadworks, house pads, site cleanups, land clearing, dam construction, even dewatering and swamp drainage. I didn't even know you could do that. They have a 140H grader, which is big, and their Positrack Bobcat is also huge. There's a D65 dozer, three excavators for hire, including a 20-ton, 8-ton, and a 2.5-ton. Plus, they provide side truck hire and even have a roller and a water truck. So contact Carl Dakin at NICAD Earth Moving on 0488 228806 and the earth will move for you.